Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of child sexual abuse. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to that topic ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What's the weather like in New Jersey these days? It's chilly, but it hasn't actually been too Mm -hmm. cold. But there's frost on the car every morning. I have to, like, warm up my car before I go driving. Oh. It's like a new thing. Well, a a new old thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Still haven't gone out and bought one of those, like, scrapers for my car, because I don't know why. But I have to say, it is so beautiful here. It is, like, the most beautiful fall i've seen in like a decade it's so nice Nice. to be around all the falling leaves and the different autumn colors and all that jazz so yeah it's pretty really pretty around here i think it was maybe in like october or november a few years back i was in new york for literally 48 hours Mm -hmm. um And it was fall, and I was walking through Central Park, and I only had, like, a few hours to wander all of New York, so I was doing it kind of quickly, but it was so pretty, like, the just cascade of colored leaves falling Uh, around. It was really pretty. It's so nice. It's like a movie. Like, when the wind blows and all the leaves fall, I'm like, I feel like a... (laughs) I feel like I'm in a Hallmark movie. You feel like a, you're Autumn in New York or something in a, in totally. a Richard Gere romantic comedy? Yeah, I feel like I should be like hold, wearing a big uh, chunky sweater and a scarf and I should have like a, a cup of hot coffee as I'm like. So you basically want to be Nicole Kidman in every movie she's ever been in. Basically, basically. Just a, a nice little cardigan standing outside on a chilly patio. What's wrong with that? I can't remember if it's conversations I've had with you or another one of my friends, but I think I I have described at a period, at various periods of my life, I have described Nicole Kidman as the perfect actress to play a woman who is silently suffering. (laughs) (laughs) I could totally see that. I mean, she's played that that part many times. Many times, yes. (laughs) To perfection, though. Yeah. Um... Well, I have just one thing to mention really quickly, which is, did you see in the news that the two men who were convicted of killing Malcolm X have been exonerated? No. Yeah. So remember how I talked about how, like, there was, it was really circumstantial evidence, and they Mm -hmm. kind of maintained that they had nothing to do with it over the years, and they were sort of just, like, scapegoats, and maybe there was other folks Mm -hmm. in play, like, perhaps the government or other large organizations. And uh, yeah, the judge uh, exonerated both of them. So after spending something like 40 or more years in prison, they're both free. Wow. That's amazing. That's shocking. Yeah. I can't believe I've done it, but I've gone through the entire catalog of Sinisterhood. I'm currently like 100% up to date. I am so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm really impressed. Good job. And the other thing is, I was listening to the Bravo docket the other day. Oh, oh yeah. P.S. Have you heard? I don't know if it's out yet or if I'm behind the curve. You heard they're going to be doing a new Hulu special called, like, The <laughs> the Hustler and the Shaw Squad. 
It's, uh, yes, I know, absolutely, of course I know about it, because I okay. am very invested in this Jen Shaw storyline in oh. Salt Lake City. Um, so yes, it's coming out on Hulu, I think, on the 29th, maybe? Oh, perfect, I can't wait. I saw, I'm excited. I saw online that the, the hosts of the Bravo docket are featured on the documentary. Yes! Amazing! Yes, they are. Good for them. Along with... Dana Wilkie, or whatever her name is, Dana, of course, $25,000. And, you... and my favorite part is in the commercial, she goes like, all right, let's break this down, as though oh she gosh. has all of this insider information and isn't just an attention whore. Uh, amen. Is uh, Danielle Staub in this one? <laughs> yes, she is. And her hair is inexplicable. So you absolutely <laughs> need to watch it just to try to explain what is going on with that hair. I can't wait. Oh, what do you think about the, I mean, let's see, the last, I guess tomorrow's the next episode. What do you think of the last episode of Salt Lake City with Jen Shaw and the whole lie about her husband in the hospital? The last two episodes of Salt Lake City have been truly captivating. I have Mm -hmm. actually managed to get Miles invested in The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City because he was so interested in Erica Jane's, like, takedown Mm -hmm. that now I was like, well, listen, the FBI is about to show up at the next episode of Salt Lake City. So he was like, I'm in. So uh, I've got him on Salt Lake City now. He's also watching Potomac with us. Um, I think they, I think they're incredible. I knew it was all coming, obviously, because this was filmed right. like months and months ago. But it was still like my heart was racing when, like, suddenly you could see from the van like the SWAT team arriving in the background. It was mm-hmm. really, really good. And I, I heard recently that her person who is her alleged co-conspirator has pled guilty, which yes. doesn't look good for her. No, it doesn't. I mean, maybe she's going to so. be found guilty of something more than being Shah-amazing. <laughs> Shah-amazing. I mean, her. you know that they had to have given him a deal for giving them information on her. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So. And, like, the whole storyline that they're going with in the last episode where they're like, oh, I wonder if someone tipped them off. I mean, yes. six people had been arrested before her from this organization that all implicated her. And she's oh really t- yeah yeah she's one of the later arrests she's higher up than oh. all of them, but she's not you know she was not the first one they took down, and I have to say let's be real like you're on a TV show, it can't be hard to find you especially with a planned trip, <laughs> like I don't think uh, right, that, that one of the ladies tipped them off I think they could have just called Bravo and been like where's she at. <laughs> I uh, exactly Jen Jen in the van was like well only six people knew we were here at Beauty Lab and I'm like yeah and 45 producers right. who scheduled this months ago what right. are you talking about right uh, I have to say I love Meredith in the bathtub like clearly just staying in the bathtub <sighs> to show how unbothered she is that was iconic queen behavior I lived for Meredith's response to all of this. Oh my God. So listen, even if you out there don't like the Real Housewives, just go watch the most recent, the most two recent episodes of Salt Lake City. This episode is coming out probably the day before Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you might have to go like two or three episodes back at this point, but there, it's just worth it. It's really, so really worth it. Worth it. Uh, that moment when Heather, when they finally are like, "So what do we think?" and Heather goes, "This is the moment I've been waiting for." <laughs> That's yes. me. My favorite part was Jenny in the van being like, 
did she bring any did she leave her snacks behind <laughs> what's in her bag of what's in her bag of snacks like the SWAT the FBI is looking for one of her work colleagues and she's like um I don't think she's coming snacks? back Are, can, <laughs> let's just yes I totally agree parse these out <laughs> uh, okay that's all I so have good. <laughs> All right, are you ready to get into it? I'm ready. It, uh, this episode was weird, but let's get into it. So there's a lot of uh, looks. This is the <laughs> there's a lot of correctly. looks. This is this is the eleventh episode of season three of Law and Order. It's called Extended Family, mm-hmm. and the episode opens in sort of like a, a jewelry store slash open market. And in a few minutes, it's clear that this is like a huge shopping mall, mm-hmm. and which is so funny to me, like. I grew up in Southern California in Santa Barbara. And to me, like our big mall was the downtown mall, which is one story like outdoor shopping mall. So the idea of like a seven story mall that's all enclosed is so like foreign to my brain. Yeah, we literally live near one of the largest shopping malls in the tri-state area right now. We live like a five minute drive away from it. So that is uh-huh. what I grew up with, is that when I moved to California, I was like, where are the malls? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way when they get here. Yeah. Um. All right. So we're in the mall, and there's, like, a woman walking along with a child in hand. The little girl's holding a stuffed dog, and they're kind of walking around checking out the sights of the mall when a perfume sprayer who really takes the adage of the higher the hair, the closer to God to heart <laughs> – She's like, she offers the woman a spritz of perfume. The perfume is called Tango from De La Cuesta. Mm -hmm. And she tells her like, oh, we're offering a free makeover with every purchase. And the woman looks down at her child and says, shall we make ourselves pretty for daddy? Which is, that's going to be really gross in a few minutes, but okay. So (laughs) she sits, she sits down and by, I thought this was the child's mother at this point when she said, shall we make ourselves pretty for daddy? We later learned she is not the child's Mm -hmm. mother. Um, She's like closing her eyes, getting her makeup done. There is absolutely no makeup on the makeup brush. And (laughs) like, it's been touching her skin for approximately 15 seconds when she like opens her eyes again and is like, what do you think? How do I look? And... That alone was so stupid, but then she like looks over and realized that her daughter or this child that she had was has disappeared, and mm-hmm. she like runs walks around looking for her, you know, a little worried, starting to get more and more panicked, and then she sees the stuffed dog that the girl was carrying laying on the ground. She starts screaming the child's name. The police arrive. Logan and Briscoe get there, and they they get kind of filled in on essentially what I just told you about what happened. Mm-hmm. And they're like, is there any family here? And the cop says, nope, just the nanny. Which then it seems even weirder that she referred to this child's father as daddy. Daddy. Shall we make ourselves pretty for daddy? She is the nanny. So, anyway. I never heard Fran Fine say that. (laughs) No. This woman's acting... When we talk about, like, swinging for the fences, she swung for the fences. She, like, screams at the top of her lungs that the child wouldn't go anywhere without Brown Dog, the little stuffed animal, or the stuffed dog. Mm -hmm. And she did some pretty good, like, terrified, running around, panicked, screaming acting, but then she does the worst crying acting. It was, again, it was coming back to Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, it was... (laughs) Uh, it was Lisa Barlow. I feel so bad for her. 
It was Erica. I tried so hard to be open and honest. I asked him and he rolled his car five times. Okay. Breathe. So the dad arrives and starts screaming at this woman, the nanny. And mm-hmm. Logan and Briscoe are like talking to him and saying like, we're trying to figure out if she was kidnapped or if she just got lost. And so he screams at them. And then the wo- from off screen, it's as though somebody literally shoved this woman onto on like on camera because she just comes flying in, throws herself into the arms of the father and like and says in the weirdest like tone of voice they'll find her i know they'll find her like it was just it it was so strange it was really really weird choices it was and then logan and briscoe look at each other and i think it's meant to be like oh like will we find her but in my mind they're like what's this woman effing doing (laughs) right they're like um can we talk to the casting director because this woman was not the right choice for real okay so we get the title sequence, and I, you know, I knew I had a few minutes. So I decided to just kind of like switch the channel really quick. And I noticed that the TV miniseries, mini The Thornbirds, had started. And so I watched the entire Thornbirds miniseries, which has a runtime of like nearly eight hours. <laughs> and just as Richard Chamberlain is telling Rachel Ward the myth of the Thornbird, the title sequence wrapped up on Law and Order, and I'm back. Oh my gosh. I've never seen the Thornbirds, but if it's anything like the length of Roots. <laughs> it's very much, yes. <laughs> so, we come when we come back, the Logan and Briscoe are in the dad's home with the dad talking to him some more. This house is possibly the ugliest house we've ever seen oh. on the show, and we've seen some really ugly houses, but it has, number one, it has like, like fluffy... What are those called? Oh, valances, like uh, along the window oh, in this God. hideous faded peach color. And then this is supposed to be a rich man, by the way. Behind him, he has like a table behind the couch he's sitting on, are two vases full of plastic flower- flowers that are primary colors. There is bright red, bright yellow, and bright blue flowers. Plastic right behind him. Incredibly ugly. And this man is supposed to be like really wealthy for some reason because they're talking to him about like a ransom request. And apparently he's, I guess, this known theater producer type guy, maybe. Yeah. He also has weird statues that are like of the f- yeah. f- human figure that could be like a mix between those like things you used to draw as reference and like an Emmy Award. Yes. But they're silver. Yes. <laughs> they look like the cover of a Dave Matthews <laughs> <Yes>. band album. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So they tell him he just, like, has to wait. We have to see if we get a ransom request. We're searching for her, but you can't really do anything right now. And they ask him about his staff because they're thinking, like, maybe one of your staff kidnapped her or something. And he says that the cleaner has been with him for 12 years. They ask about the nanny. And he's like, oh, no, she was so upset she had to be sedated. She's not involved. (laughs) And then Logan says, but are you involved with her? And basically, we get confirmed that he's sleeping with the nanny, even though he and his wife, the the child's mother, are divorced. Uh, he's like, don't tell, don't tell anyone about this. Like, don't give the newspapers any more to play with. So we learn that the dad and the mom share joint custody of the daughter, and they ask where the mom is, and he says that she uh, just the other day, like maybe yesterday or the day before, left the country on a trip to Mallorca. 
And Briscoe tells the father, like, you know, it's possible we might not get a ransom demand. Like, and he says, children get taken for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. We cut to the police station and Cragen asks Briscoe, like, literally the opening line is, you vote for a perv? And Briscoe says, there's a lot of guys out there who think that's what seven-year-olds are for, which is so fucking disgusting. So Logan says that this doesn't feel like a pro because for some reason, the fact that she was picked up in a mall and not off the street means it's not a pro. I don't know how he deduces that, but that's his logic. Yeah, because isn't that like a really common thing where children have been abducted from is like a shopping center or a mall? I would think because like when there's so many people around, it's it's hard to remember like individual things. So I would have thought so. That's where the American America's Most Wanted guy, his kid got abducted from. That's like the classic story. Wait, the American America's Most Wanted kid? What? Yeah, his um that's the whole reason I think he does what he does. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Uh yeah, John Walsh, his kid was his his kid was abducted from a um from a shopping mall and was and was huh. unfortunately murdered in the 80s. Oh, from damn. Sears. I just looked it up from Sears. Yeah, I think it was wow. him and his wife, or just just his wife, or something like that. She like turned her head for a second, like a very similar thing to this episode. It's not. It's not what the case is based on. But yeah, it that was like what caused him to become who he is today. Really. Yeah. Interesting. Terrible. Wow. So the detectives look at the security footage from the mall. Oh, okay. So by the way, there is a cop who I didn't even check IMDb, but he's like probably billed as like cop number one or something like that because he has some speaking lines, but they never give us his name. So he walks in and says like, here's the security footage from the mall. And uh, we see the video of the daughter, Samantha, like walking around the toy section of the mall, touching a giant stuffed giraffe and a man walks up and they're all like look at his jacket and they figure oh he's an employee of the store because apparently logan noticed that people from the stock room wear jackets like that Mm -hmm. so they decide to get a list of every employee in the store and start looking through their records and logan says 400 people in the stock room what are they all doing and briscoe says a lot of things you don't want to know about and I was like, it's a stock room, not a meth den. I think we can calm down a little bit. Amen. That is a lot of people for a stock room, but... That is a lot, yes. At a mall. But like, yeah, what do they do? A lot of things you don't want to know about. You know what they're doing? Like, avoiding Stocking customers. Stocking boxes. <laughs> yes, and avoiding customers <laughs> taking their fucking cigarette break. Yeah. So we learned that this toy shop was on the fifth floor of the mall, and there was a man who works there who used to be a school teacher who got fired because three years prior he had been charged with sex abuse of a minor. And so he had like lost his teaching job and is now working in this children's toy store. We learned that today he has called out sick with the flu. So they're like, okay, this has got to be our guy. So they go to his house. They convince the super to open the door And inside the apartment, Logan finds a VHS tape of children's cartoons. Uh, They find a doll that says, Mama, Mama. And (laughs) when they saw that, all I could think about was, do you remember that doll where you would, like, feed it liquid and it would piss itself? Oh, my God, I do. (laughs) Like, Baby Alive? Was it called Baby Alive? I think it was called Baby Alive. I think you're absolutely right. Baby Alive, that sounds right. 
who wants a doll that pees itself? No, thank you. There was also that doll around the same time that you could feed food. I don't know if it was the same one, but I remember it oh, with got a recalled. little purple spoon. Yeah, I, I, yes, but it got recalled because it was like breaking kids' fingers or something <laughs> in the mouth. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh at that, but the irony of that is what I'm laughing at. I, I know. <sighs> okay, so Briscoe pulls up the sheets and sees like. A, a shirt under the bed that appears to have a lot of stains on it and he picks it up with a pen so i get a point for that you do and even though it looks like it could be blood stains the, the super just says it's chocolate <laughs> even though he's like 20 feet away from the shirt at this point he's able to identify the stains on one of his renter's shirts i just thought and- that was so strange yeah, and also what I thought was strange was the shirt was found, if I remember correctly, like, at the foot of the bed, just, like, on the ground. Yes. And I'm like, okay, do you have a, you might, you might be a slob, but put that in the hamper. You're going to get ants, like, ants. galore. <laughs> so uh, we learned that he has a nighttime job working at a chocolate factory. And so they head down there. They confront him. We learn his name is Harold Zorn, which sounds like a robot name. Yeah, a bunch of Oompa and, came out and told us that. <laughs> yes. And uh, he said, they walk up and he immediately is like, I haven't done anything. And he asks if, he, if he's being arrested and they say, not yet. And he goes, it's about the girl. And they tell him they just want to ask him a few questions. So they take him down to the station and he is answering them pr- pretty compliantly. He's like saying he, he he's not denying that he spoke to the child, but he left her at the store and went to get coffee at this diner across the street on his break. And then Logan and Briscoe do this, some really weird stuff where they're like showing him the picture of Samantha and they're like, look at this little girl. Tell me you don't want her. It was (sighs) so gross and unnecessary. And he's like, listen, I talked to the girl, um, but she, when I was talking to her, she pointed to one of the stuffed gorillas that we sell and said that a woman at the register was buying it for her. And just then, Cragen knocks at the door and tells Logan and Briscoe that this guy's alibi does check out. The people at the coffee shop remember him being there. uh, So he is not the person who abducted this child. So they say they're back to square one, or as Cragen says, square minus one, which doesn't make any sense, but all right. And the guy who was cast as cop number one gets his like third opportunity at screen time to tell Briscoe that the father still hasn't received a ransom call. So the idea that this kidnapping is motivated by money is looking less likely. But we do find out that someone had bought this gorilla about three minutes before closing. So they don't think that three minutes before closing, somebody could have bought a gorilla and made it all the way out of the mall. But by the time they locked the front doors, because this, again, was on the fifth floor. And so they're like, okay, the door would have been locked. So they would have sent her through the loading docks to leave the store. And again, I've worked retail and you just have somebody stand by the front door and lock and unlock it as you let the customers out. You don't just send them through the docks. Yeah, the doors don't lock and then they're sealed shut. It's not like the future. Like, this isn't a spaceship where doors shut and it's, like, unable to leave. Like, what you do is you have a million employees walking past that person, giving them stink eye until they leave. Yes. Yes. That's exactly (laughs) right. 
All right, so they head down to the loading docks where supposedly this woman would have gone through with the child. And the first guy that they're talking to is like, I didn't see anybody, but another guy overhears this conversation and says like, oh, a gorilla? Like, I helped that woman. And he describes her as having dark hair in her late 40s, and she was driving a brand new gray car with a black leather top. And Briscoe says, a Landau, which I don't even know what that is, but... Wouldn't you that's... think there would be more than one type of car in the history of cars that's gray with black leather top? Yeah. The only Landau I know is Martin Landau from The Odd Couple. <laughs> I thought the same thing. So the guy that they're talking to says that the woman is lucky she didn't get towed all she, for where she parked her car. All she got was a ticket. And so they're like, bingo, bango. And they start looking through all the meter made tickets from the evening. That's probably not what they're called anymore, huh? Um, it's probably like parking know. enforcement or something. Yeah, there's, there's got to be a more like PC name for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're looking through the ticket records for the the parking attendants who were or parking enforcement who were working in the area. And there's they gave out hundreds of them that night. And so they're like, oh, this is going to take a while. But then, of course, they stumble across one and they're uh, they identify the car and they're like here it is let's go to that address we're gonna find samantha inside well okay so they knock at the door and a man answers and he kind of just like only pokes his head out and they're like alan fisher do you own a gray lincoln and we're here for to talk about samantha silver and he says do you have a warrant and Briscoe's response is to kick down the door and shout, we don't need a warrant, which I am pretty sure is not true. <laughs> I don't think that's how it goes. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's how it's certainly not how it's supposed to go. So they barge in and Logan runs over to this child that he spots and says, Samantha, it's OK. And she screams for her mom and... I guess we learned that apparently this is the wrong girl because the mom is over there and picks up the child and is like, this is my daughter. So they bring that guy down to the station anyway, even though all that happened was he was at home with his wife and child. And they grill him a bit and are like asking him if Samantha is still alive and what did your wife have to do with it? And they ask about the gorilla, and the they're questioning the wife, and she says, like, we bought the gorilla downtown somewhere. We did nothing wrong. The co- the, he, So he says that he didn't kidnap her, and then cop number one gets his fourth shot at screen time, <laughs> and he comes in and says that the mom has no record, but she did work at the Child Abuse Legal Defense Fund. So then we head down there. And I guess the owners, maybe, or the managers of the Child Abuse Legal Defense Fund say, like, the justice system isn't working, so we, quote, rescued the children ourselves. Mm-hmm. And they they say that they don't know who Samantha Silver is, but they ask where the Fishers took the girl. And they're like, the Fishers have nothing to do with this organization. And they're like, how do you know the Fishers, but not Samantha Silver? It's so, I don't, I really, truly feel like this episode was meant to make me crazy because I don't, the plot was just weird, like not complicated in a sophisticated fashion, complicated in a who the fuck are these people and what is happening kind of situation. Yeah, like they're relying on a lot of like Freudian slips kind of. Yeah, yeah. So they, these people at this defense fund point them toward a woman named Ramona Stark, who is a child psychologist who I guess does a lot of work for 
children in abusive homes. So they head over to, like, her apartment building or something, some building that we're not ever given an explanation about. (laughs) And they're about to go up the doors when Logan hears a child's laughter, which I have been in New York. I strongly doubt that he would have been able to hear a child's laughter from the distance that the children child is from the street. A hundred percent, especially once they get inside and see where the children actually are. Like, it's several doors in, several doors, like a hallway. (laughs) Yes, it's not believable in any way. They look around and decide to just, they're like, well, why don't we just break in? And they smash open the window saying, like, we have exigent circumstances, which means essentially that they believed they they were going to claim they thought someone's life was in danger, so that's why they broke into this property. Mm-hmm. And then something even weirder ensues, which is they walk down this hallway, going past several doors, as you just said, and then this woman screams, it's the police! And <laughs> And they walk into a room full of children and some women, and they ask for Ramona Stark, and she's one of the women at a table full of children, And they start to try to arrest her for the kidnapping of Samantha Silver. But then, and again, Logan says to Samantha, because he actually found her this time, it's okay, we're going to take you home. She also screams no. And I would like to encourage, I would like to applaud these children's reactions to uh, Detective Logan. Uh, Scream no at him and run away if you see him. (laughs) So she runs away. And then a woman runs over and says, I'm Janet Silver. Samantha's my daughter. She wasn't kidnapped. She's here at my request. And what we kind of learn in the ensuing conversation is that she, this is the mother, her trip to Mallorca was not true to begin with. And that she says that her Samantha's father was sexually abusing her. And this was her strategy to get the child away from her because what in the very beginning the dad talked about how when he and the wife got divorced she had sued for full custody but lost it he got full custody and she just has a visitation Mm -hmm. so this like organization that she got connected with is i guess some kind of shelter maybe for people who are escaping abusive situations but the problem is she kidnapped her daughter even though she's her own daughter she couldn't (laughs) legally kidnap her from her dad's like custody so She, again, says, you know, her dad was assaulting her. We get some dramatic music, and in the next scene, we're in Stone's office, where the mom says that the dad was making Samantha take showers with him and his girlfriend, which is, again, the nanny that we saw in the uh, opening scene. And they're like, how do you know this? And she says that her daughter told her that they were taking naked naps in bed. So, yeah. Stone is like, okay, well... I feel for you, but an accusation is not enough for us to prosecute somebody. Like, we need evidence. So then there's this other random doctor who shows up in two two scenes. I guess he is another child psychologist. Not Ramona, but he says he examined uh, Samantha. When, but Stone says, that was two weeks ago, as though that is insufficient. Like, it's... Not credible because it happened two weeks ago, which they never explained that. So that was weird. Yeah. (laughs) So 
the the lawyer for Samantha's mom says basically like you need to file charges against the dad today or we will go to the papers with this story about how the mom is just trying to rescue her daughter from the abusive father. So Stone and Robinette go and talk to uh, D.A. Schiff and he, D.A. Schiff, doesn't really seem to believe any of this. He's And of course he uses the classic line of like accusing the father could destroy this man's life, which oh, is yeah. gross. And so Schiff says like you have to have Olivet, Dr. Olivet, the uh, psychologist that works with the police department, assess the child. It, meanwhile, the father like barges into Stone's office and tells him that all of these ac- accusations are bullshit and... His wife is just trying to get back at him because he won full custody and trying to get the kid back. So Logan, or so Stone and Robinette do kind of do some due diligence, I guess, to, to look into that claim. And they decide their line of investigation is going to be looking into Ramona Stark, the psychologist, um, and seeing what other cases she was involved with, with so that they can kind of determine how credible her assessment of Samantha was. They interview two different people. I'm just going to give you Cliff's notes. One of them says Ramona is a saint. The other one says Ramona helped coach somebody so that my child could get taken away from me. So we get very polarizing opinions on Ramona. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of trying to figure out uh, you know, how do we connect this to our case? It doesn't really help them one way or another because they have differing opinions on whether Ramona can be trusted. Right. Was one of those women the one that looked like Madonna? <laughs> like, in, like in the Lucky Star Oh, video? no, we're, get, we're getting to her. But, oh, okay. Uh, Dr. Olivet interviews Samantha, and she asks Samantha to draw a picture of her family. And so the daughter draws, she takes a blue crayon, and she draws a woman or a stick figure with like a super smiley face. And again, she drew this all with a blue crayon and then looks at Dr. Olivet and says, I need blue for her eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, y- you have Hello. it. It is in your hand. <laughs> I think the directors just didn't pay attention or something. You know, they're like, she's like, that's my mom. And, you know, mom is really happy, smiley face. And she says, okay, we'll, we'll draw draw yourself like why don't you draw you in the picture and she draws a tiny sad little stick figure in the corner that looks really sad and then dr olivet says and what about daddy and she draws a really big face with like a squiggly line mouth Hmm. and then dr olivet asks samantha like how did daddy touch you and Samantha's like, when's my mom coming back? And then she says, just draw a circle on the stick figure where he touched you. And Samantha's like, I don't want to talk anymore. And then Dr. Olivet just gives her a hug. That was also a very weird scene to me. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah. So she tells, Dr. Olivet tells Stone and Robinette that uh, Samantha had displayed characteristics of an abused child, but she didn't get confirmation that her father had assaulted her. So... They ask about the medical report on Samantha, and she did have some scarring, but no tearing or bacterial infection that would indicate recent sexual abuse. But she says the dad doesn't really fit the typical profile of a child molester, and then she says, quote, unless he's a preferential type, prefers family. The dad says, like, or I'm sorry, Stone says, wasn't the dad married before? And so they, like, realize there's another daughter, an older one. Who they go to, like, 
interview to see if he molested her so that they have more evidence for him potentially having molested Samantha. So the, it's so funny you said Madonna because my, my note to myself literally says, so they track down his older daughter whose outfit, performance, and strange monologue are actually indescribable. It has to be experienced. (laughs) Yes. But Madonna was, Madonna in like Lucky Star, that's pretty close to what this woman looks like. I agree, 100%. So she tells them, again, this weird monologue, and basically we kind of get confirmation that he was assaulting her when she was a child, and so they think it's likely he was abusing Samantha. So Schiff tells the uh, Stone and Robinette to offer the dad a plea deal of sex abuse too, because he doesn't think they have enough of a case to win. And they offer that to the dad, but he says, I didn't do anything. And so Stone says, well, then I'll see you in court. But we know Stone is bluffing because he doesn't have enough evidence at this point. Mm -hmm. So they go back to the mom and tell her that, like, you need to help us find more evidence to prosecute your ex-husband. And Ramona, the child psychologist, says, give her the tape. And then hands him a VHS tape and says, this takes it beyond any reasonable doubt. And the videotape shows Samantha being interviewed by Ramona Stark, the child psychologist. And she says, like, don't you miss daddy? And Samantha says, yes. And then she asks her, did he ever touch you? And she says, yes. And says, it's bad where daddy touched me. And Samantha also says, he made me touch him too. And so Stone goes to the judge and is trying to get this tape admitted into evidence, but of course the dad's lawyer is fighting this. Mm -hmm. And so the judge says he can't admit the tape when the daughter is technically available to testify, which Stone was trying to not do because it would re-traumatize her and maybe she wouldn't be a credible witness anyway. So the, the judge says, no tape, but we will question her in chambers with a closed circuit video so that it's as private as possible. She doesn't have to deal with being in the courtroom. Meanwhile, they put Ramona Stark on the stand and she says that, uh, you know, she has extensive knowledge of working with children who have been assaulted. And she gives them her expert opinion that Samantha fits this profile in every respect. And Stone says, is it possible that it's entirely made up, that nothing happened. And Ramona says, no, something certainly happened. And then the defense comes up and is like, well, something happened. That's vague. And then her response is, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, which means nothing, literally, (laughs) to distinguish between this situation. So I don't know what the point of that was. But... He asks the Ramona, whether you think it's likely or not, is it possible that the mother put the idea into Samantha's head? And isn't it possible that Samantha could be lying if her mother convinced her? And Ramona, like, has to admit, yes, that could be possible. So they put the mom on the stand, and Stone asks her uh, why she asked Ramona to help her take her child, why she helped her kidnap her child, And she says that Samantha, um, you know, again, had told her about her dad taking nude naps with her and his girlfriend. And she says that she got really upset when her daughter told her this and she scared Samantha. So that's why she involved Ramona, because she wanted a professional to ask her the questions. 
The defense cross-examines her and basically says that she brainwashed her own daughter. And her response is, we didn't brainwash her. We got a doctor. And then we get the next scene in uh, the uh, judge's chambers. And Mr. Stone, I don't know why I wrote Mr. Stone, because I think somebody uh, must have said Mr. Stone when I was taking my notes. Mm-hmm. So Stone questions her and asks her how many times her dad had touched her. And her response is that Ramona said to, te- to say that he touched me a lot of times. And so Stone is realizing that Ramona coached the child. And so he asks her a few more questions and she suddenly starts to cry and she says, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I forgot. And the defense attorney now takes over and and asks Samantha some questions. And she, uh, and he asks her, has your dad done anything that you think he should be punished for? And she says that daddy won't let me go to France where mommy said she'll take me and give me a pony. So essentially, uh, we learned that the mom had manipulated Samantha to with this story of you know moving to France and giving her a pony, and Ramona had helped coach her to say certain things so that this woman could get custody of her daughter. But um, back in Stone's office, they're telling the mom like this totally undermines our case. We're we're in muddied water, and. The mom says that her daughter did tell her about the showers. Like, that is true. And Stone says, well, I hope the jury believes you. So the jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty. So Stone and Robinette have lost the case. And the mom and Ramona are crying in the courtroom while the dad celebrates. And we literally get what feels like a seven-minute scene of the mom just furiously staring at people like there it's like her head turning left and right it's like a scene from carrie where she's like whipping her head around with her big eyeballs trying to kill people it's proof from charmed yeah it it is proof from charmed that's another perfect example so um essentially now stone in in the closing scene is talking about how they do believe that the dad was assaulting the child but because she sort of like ruined the case for them and she kidnapped her own daughter. Now they're going to have to go over the mom for kidnapping. And Stone says like, everyone's a victim in this. And Ramanet says, I only see one victim here and she's seven years old. And mm. that's the end of the episode. Dun, dun. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the true crime. So I had never heard about this. This is the story of Faye Yeager. Okay. I don't know that name. Mm. So this story is really polarizing. I read a lot of articles about it, and people have very varying opinions of her over the years. Okay. And it's sort of touchy because it involves a lot of he said, she said. Um, Mm. It becomes really challenging to decipher what is fact and what is fiction because – yeah. So much of what is involved here, kind of like the episode, is based on, like, eyewitness accounts. We don't know how reliable the witnesses are. A lot of the accounts are from, maybe from children. And it's like, eyewitnesses who probably have a stake in the case going one direction or the other kind of thing. Right, right. And we all know how reliable the human brain is about eyewitness (laughs) things as it is. So, yeah. 
So anyway, so let's we'll see where we all land on this. So let's start with some background on who will become known as Faye Yeager. That's not her okay. given name at birth. Okay. So she was born Billy Faye Weissen. Okay. In around nine, 1950, and she was the fourth of 11 children. Her father was Whoa. a coal miner. I know, I know. Back in the day, you know, when we just had, like, families of a, a zillion. Wait, tell me the year, 1950? Yeah. God, I'm surprised a coal miner in the 1950s lived long enough to have 11 children. Right? Right. <laughs> he lived a long life, it seems like, too. Huh. Um, this all takes place, or she, so she's born in West Virginia. Not much is reported about her very early life, um, but when she was a teenager, she was known to be sort of a wild child. Nothing out of control, but maybe for the, you know, 60s, <laughs> she was yeah. a wild child. Um, all right. She, she would was get into that, that rock and roll, the devil's music. Exactly, exactly. Low-cut blouses, an ankle. <laughs> um, so she was known to be kicked out of some school dances for being, you know, crazy dancing. Um, it, it seems like she was basically, like, very flirtatious, you know? Okay. Um, her parents were pretty strict with her. She wasn't allowed to wear a mini skirt, for instance, and she was anxious to get out there and fall in love and start her own life. When she was 17 years old, she meets a man named Roger Jones, who was 21. He had a nice car, so she was instantly like, wow, this guy's cool. <laughs> and uh, It was the scene from Greece. Tell me more, tell me this, more. Like, does oh, he have a car? <laughs> 100%. This whole thing feels very much like Greece okay. at, at this point. Um, so this guy, Roger, will become her first boyfriend. She would say, quote, I'd never dated before. My parents were very strict on me, and I figured I could do now anything I wanted. And she was 16 17. and he was 21? 17, 17 okay. 21, yep. So the two of them worked together at Jones's parents' uh, department store, Roger Jones's parents' department store in uh, Beckley, West Virginia. Okay. Her father they both was, worked there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Her father was not a huge fan of him, but <laughs> when has that ever stopped, you know, a teenager from dating somebody? Right, if anything, that's like, oh my god, now I really love him. Exactly. So she ends up marrying him not too long after this. Okay. The two of them move to Georgia together, and they eventually have a daughter that they name Michelle. Um, when Billy was 20 years old. And Billy is now married to him, so she's Billy Faye Jones. So this is her second name. Billy J. Weissen is now Billy Faye Jones. Okay. Two years after this, after her daughter's born, it's now 1973. Billy is now 22 years old. Her daughter's two. Um, she walks in on her husband using their daughter Michelle's hand to fondle his genitals. Ugh. So she loses it, understandably so. Um, and he tells her, he it basically gaslights her he, from the jump and says, you imagined it, it didn't happen. Um, he tells her, he like doesn't say like no one's going to believe you, just tells her, you, what are you talking about that didn't happen? Right. He accuses her of being insane, and she later says, quote, there's three defenses for a child molester. You're crazy, you're a whore, or you're a lesbian. And I assure you, it doesn't matter what courtroom in America you go in, the trial molester is going to say, whoever's making the accusation, even if they're right, they're a whore, they're a lesbian, or they're crazy, and I was crazy. 
That's what he told her. That she was crazy, yeah. And this is her understanding. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is her belief. Okay. So not only did he not believe her, not only did he say she was unbelievable, nobody believed her. Um, she tells, you know, the court, she goes to the police, and nobody takes her seriously. Hmm. She does admit that during that time, in all of these places she went to, she was a, quote, wild woman. Um, she describes herself in those days as a bitch on wheels. <laughs> Roger decides to have his wife committed to a psychiatric unit oh, in the local God. hospital for these accusations she's making about him that she sa- he says are unfounded and, and of her own imagination. In this psychiatric unit, she's diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. She's given heavy tranquilizers and shock therapy. You you watched Mad Men, right? Uh, yeah, for a while, yeah. It's totally reminding me of like when the psychiatrist like calls Don Draper to like tell him everything Betty said in therapy, and then <sighs> like the scenes of uh, Emily Gilmore getting her brain, uh, or not mm-hmm. Emily, Rory Gilmore getting her brain zapped. Yeah, it's very, like, she's hysterical, you know? Right, right. Electrocutor. Exactly. <laughs> she's being a bitch. Electrocutor. <laughs> exactly, Ugh. exactly. So while she's in this psychiatric unit, um, this is in Georgia, another patient there named John Durham ends up being her saving grace. He's an unsavory character, but to her, he's kind of like her white knight because... Three days before she was set to be committed to an actual mental hospital in Georgia, he ends up calling her father, the coal miner, and uh-huh. he tells her, he tells him, you know, he's still up in West Virginia, and he says, like, you got to get down here because they want to commit her and she's not crazy. So he does come down there in time. So John Durham gets her father to come down here. He comes down, he gets her released against the doctor's, you know, wishes, and it's, it, takes days before Billy ends up filing for divorce from Roger immediately, of course, and, you know, wants to get full custody of her daughter since, you know, she witnessed him molesting her. Right. Despite her best efforts, she loses the custody battle. Um, she, the divorce is finalized. She loses custody. And she says, quote, I went to court looking like a frightened coal miner's daughter, which I was, and he was standing there in a nice suit, an accountant from a wealthy family. Who would you believe? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's exactly what ends up happening. Now, before this trial for custody happens, she had temporary custody of her daughter, Michelle, who is now, I believe, four years old. Okay. And her daughter had yellow discharge in her underwear. So she took Mm -hmm. her to the doctor. And after the trial happens, when she's denied custody, the results come back and her four-year-old daughter tests positive for gonorrhea. Mm. horrified mm. Billy brought this to the courts and thought surely now something is going to happen right. but nothing is done about it lawyers did not appeal and the judge would not reverse his decision so her fight for custody continues to come up fruitless for years and in the meantime she ends up marrying that patient that fellow patient that helped get her out named um, John Durham mm-hmm. um, so now she is F- Billy Faye Durham So it's her third name so far. Okay. While this is all happening, Roger takes their daughter and moves to Florida. He has full custody. She fights for a while to try to get custody. She she gets nowhere. And in the mid-80s, her daughter is now a a tween living in Florida with her ex-husband, Roger. 
Billy basically has all but given up the fight and eventually decides, you know, she's going to move on with her life and she decides to divorce her husband, John Durham, who was, you know, her saving grace when she was in the facility. Maybe now that they're both out, it's not exactly what she thought. And during this process, it's not clear if this was the catalyst for what happens next or not. But during her process of getting divorced from him before it's finalized, he and John Durham ends up dying by suicide. Mm, And now this leaves Billy a widow. By 1987, she'd remarried an Atlanta doctor named Howard Yeager, who was 47. Um, Billy is now 37 years old. And it's then it is then when she drops her first name and begins going by her middle name Faye, and now this is when she becomes Faye Yeager. So okay, <laughs> no more Billy throughout the rest of the story. This is now her given name, the story of Faye Yeager. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great, got so, it. One article claims that this man, this doctor that she marries, uh, Howard Yeager, was the actual doctor of her deceased ex husband. But it's only in one article. All the other articles, when they describe his, like, focus as a doctor, he's a pediatrician. So Hmm. I don't really know which is true. Um, But it really doesn't so much matter. He is sort of a tertiary character in the rest of this at best. Okay. So now it's 1987. Faye is remarried. Her daughter, Michelle, is now a teenager. Um, Michelle is now pregnant, um, and she's fighting a drug habit of her own, hopefully, successfully while she's pregnant but that's sort of like where michelle is at in her life Mm -hmm. faye and michelle have a relationship um albeit being strained at this point and michelle's relationship with her father roger is basically destroyed now let's talk about the father roger for a moment here so in the storyline now we're at 1987 faye's remarried um you know great One year earlier, in 1986, Roger Jones, her first husband, her first boyfriend, the father of Michelle, he's arrested in Venice, Florida, on charges of sexually molesting two young girls aged 10 and 14 years old. The acts were found on videotape in his Uh, home. Oh my god. The tape is 60 minutes long. Shut up. No. Okay. <laughs> so he's arrested because of this, and he posts bail, believe it or not, and he flees. Mm. Roger will become the first man ever on the FBI's most wanted list for sexual molestation. Wow. Mm-hmm. It takes two years, almost, for them to find him. He's finally found in 1989 in Montana where he's now rearrested and awaiting a court date. His daughter, Michelle, was brought to the courthouse, and she ends up testifying pre-trial, but her testimony was not admitted into the actual trial that would follow. Um, they said it wasn't, you know, it wasn't admitted into evidence, basically. The judge wouldn't allow it. Mm-hmm. She would, however, tell her mother that she had been continually molested by her father until she was 12 years old while she was living with him in Florida. Mm. Faye does go to the trial of her ex-husband. She's not a witness or anything. She's just a spectator. And there's this really long write-up of the whole experience from her point of view. It's pretty wild. It's titled The Last Angry Woman. It'll be in part Hmm. of my um, research on the website, and you can look it up. It's very well-written. It's a wild ride. 
Okay. It features tons of interviews and quotes from Faye and her sister Mary, who accompanied her over the three-day trial. This is uh, the trial that the trial ends up happening in 1991. Okay. It gives a real glimpse into her character, and she is a character. I have not personally been able to find any footage of Faye. But it's described in this write-up and in many, many, many of the articles that she loved to be on TV. She was in a lot of mm. press. She was on Geraldo, Sally Jesse Raphael, Nightline 2020, Dateline, and more. So, in okay, I I know that this we haven't gotten to the conclusion yet. In mm-hmm. in a potential point in her defense, if I had been like ignored by the court system and was trying to fight for my child and the news was listening to me, I would be on every single channel talking about oh, it. Oh, sure. I will say her, the context for her being on these shows was not in defense is, was not in like trying to get her daughter back or trying to get her husband, her ex-husband put away. It's mm-hmm. because of things that we'll find out in the future. She of course talks about this, uh, what happened and how she was not listened to in, in all the press but yeah. that's not why she's on TV. All right. Well, then I'm, I take back my defense. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, we'll, we'll see. So we'll see. Okay. all of these articles that talk about her being on the show and really all the articles in general talk about her very distinctive, deep Southern twang and like country sounding voice and vernacular. So I really wish I could find something. I really tried. I couldn't find anything. But I'm just imagining Rue McClanahan. I, I imagine like Rue McClanahan on speed. <laughs> Okay. So uh, here's a quote. She turns me into May, think into thank. All right. There you go. So she's known also for her, like, appearance. A lot of the articles make a lot about her appearance. I think they like the fact of, like, her being the kind of character she is, but having a very, like, southern lady appearance. Um, Mm. She also loves that kind of attention. She's known for her, like... Hats. That's like a big thing with her. She likes to wear different <laughs> hats all the time. And in this article where she's like, the article is all about her preparing for this trial, this like vindication she's having about her ex-husband actually being uh, a child molester. And she's finally getting like, you know, she's kind of treating it like her day in court. Yeah. Um, she's really enjoying it. And uh, she has a lot to say about it. Like I said, you got to read the article. There's a whole section of the article where she's preparing her outfits for each day of trial and a different hat for each one. She has a different style picked out for different reasons. And she says Mm -hmm. things like, I'm going to lower the black veil tomorrow, honey. I'm going to hang some crepe. (laughs) So she's she's doing some performing. (laughs) She's doing the most. Yeah. Okay. So the trial goes, you know, goes through. She she's in court every day watching what's going on. Her daughter Michelle would come to say of her father before sentencing. Someone asks her like, "What do you think should happen to your father?" And Michelle says of her father, "He's a pervert and a sleazebag and he should be hung by his nuts." <laughs> well, that's she's not mincing any words there. No, no. And while Faye and her have a very strained relationship, they're, you know, they're together. Uh they met there. Faye says something like you know, my mouth is poison, and that's Poison Jr. Something like that. All right. So he ends up being sentenced to 30 years in prison for his crimes. I don't think that's long enough, but there's that. And this was in 1991, yeah. so I was really curious to see where he is now because it's now 30 years this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he served the full term, but he is currently listed as 
Uh, this is from the sex offender registry in, in Florida. His status currently on the website is serving a court-ordered term of community monitoring under the authority of the Department of Corrections and or the Florida Parole Commission. So he is out. I don't know if he's served the full term. He's on the sex offender registry. All of his crimes are listed there. And he's currently living in Jacksonville as of August 2021. Okay. So that's all I have on him. Um, A quote from Faye, she says, You know how kids have that little bright sparkle and everything is wonderful? It's taken away. You remember your first kiss and your first dance? These kids don't get that. It's wild, and I had to watch that, court-ordered. I had to post a bond to see my child because I was considered crazy, and all the time he was molesting her and any of her little friends he could get a hold of. So, let's get back to Faye. In 1987. So 1987 is a year after her ex is initially charged with the crimes that would end up eventually landing him in prison. Okay. She reads an article in 1987 about another woman whose husband had sexually abused their child in Mississippi. And, you know, this woman struggled with the court. And she decides, I got to do something about this. She said of her husband, Howard, he knew he didn't marry no Donna Reed. <laughs> And so she heads down to Mississippi to meet this woman and helps join this woman's fight against the DA's office. She's very outspoken. She's, you know, in the local news about it. And she just, at this point, becomes the most visible link to a network that would be called the Children of the Underground. Mm, Okay. So in 1987, she forms this network. And over the next few years, she grows this organization into an underground railroad of sorts in order to transport women and sometimes men and their children away from their spouses who they say have been sexually abusing their children. Mm -hmm. She brings them to new locations where they assume fake identities and they they essentially live on the run. Quote, the underground wages a constant battle of wits with the FBI, local police, and private in- investigators out to hunt down missing families. Anonymous yet deeply committed, many volunteers are drawn from feminist, children's rights, and religious organizations. So, Faye is never shy about her role in this organization. She's very proud of it, and you know she's she is the public figurehead of the Children of the Underground. This is why she's always on the news and doing right. the press. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Over the next decade, she's constantly out there saying how proud she is to be the unspoken leader of this group. Uh, again, she's in the media countless times defending her actions and saying how simple it really has been for her to stay above the law. Um, when she's asked about like how she you know, doesn't get arrested or brought in by the FBI, she says... You know, they're the laziest damn bunch of people. They work from 9 to 5. Anything you want to do, you just do it after 5. She used to be affiliated with and work closely with MARP, which is Mothers Against Raping Children. But they split with her pretty early on um, in the early 90s saying, quote, We didn't agree with some of Faye's tactics. In fact, we think it's dangerous some of the things that she's doing. She has studied up on forgery and fraud, and she described how surprisingly simple it is to get people fake IDs, passports, and more. Her network is international, and she claims to have helped over 7,000 people. She claims of the 7,000, about 3,400 have proceeded with escaping and assuming a new life under new identities and are currently on the run. Officials don't 
they think she's bolstering the number a bit, but they would say that the number is probably closer to 700. But that's still okay. a lot. Yeah. She says, quote, I give women a crash course on how to break the law and get away with it. Now, aside from the fact that she operates outside the judicial system and doesn't work with police and, you know, is helping people kidnap their kids. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of controversy um, she's helping people commit serious crimes, yes, but there's other reasons that her operation is criticized. Okay. She has children and parents look up death certificates of kids that match up with the ages of the kids that she's helping get fake identities, which is mm-hmm. pretty dark. Yeah. Um, she also has a lot of homophobic rhetoric among her belief system. Okay. And she helps to perpetuate the false stereotypes that link pedophilia to the queer community. Sure. In one interview, uh, in one of the articles, she's sitting outside a church where she believes that several members of the congregation are child molesters. And in the interview, she's in a van with the reporter and her sister and some other members of her network. And she's constantly referring to the pastor and some of the other men as queers. She's not Mm. saying it in like a (laughs) reclaiming kind of way. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound like it. It's the early 90s, remember. No. And she says that she could tell that they're quote-unquote queers because, you know, she could just tell. And she, of course, is directly correlating this with pedophilia. Yeah. And when asked how, she says, I could just spot them a mile away. The way they walk, they walk like they got a corn cob up there behind. Okay? So this is (sighs) Faye. (laughs) Among other dangerous and false beliefs – she really buys into the satanic panic that swept through oh. the nation in the 80s and beyond. Like, yeah. really hard. Leans in heavy. Okay. She has lots and lots of theories about the satanic rituals and child sacrifice um, that she tosses around with impunity. She just It's just every interview you have with her. In one hand, she starts talking about, like, you know, how children are being abused by their parents and... You know, the the women can't get any help from the court system, and you're sort of, like, on her side, and then she just dives into Satan. Hard. (laughs) Um, She claims, quote, America has given up its children not merely to individual deviates, but to a conspiracy of Satanists, preachers and politicians and mafioso and masons bent on stealing souls. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. One woman who asked for her help early on and then later, after being whisked away with her kids and realizing that her life is now going to be lived constantly on the run, Mm -hmm. said, quote, She told me my children would come into my bedroom at night while I was asleep and perform satanic rituals over my bed. She told me my children were poisoning me, feeding me with cyanide. It was at this point she said she realized she was dealing with a, quote, crazy woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> she later, yeah, she later leaves the underground, uh, apologizes, saying that her claims about, you know, being abused were false, that she was using mm-hmm. it for like a custody battle. And she says that her children were bullied into saying that their father sexually abused them and worshiped the devil. Hmm. It is reported that 70% of Jaeger's noted cases that she takes on involve satanic ritual abuse. Mm. On that topic... <laughs> And this is the largest claim against Faye and her underground network. She doesn't seem to have a very strict vetting system to see if any of the allegations that the women and men who come to her are valid. Yeah. This is a quote. 
It says, I know some cases where she talked kids into saying that they were satanically abused. Um, that's from Charles Pickett, who was a senior case manager at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Okay. Um, he has had numerous run-ins with Faye over the years. And, you know, Faye denies these claims. She says that I require lots of documentation. She says that she is very, very strict about who she allows to, you know, run away, basically. She won't just take anyone off the street. She says that folks that seek her out, she requires, you know, doctor's notes and uh, psychologist reports. And she says that she has notebooks for each family that are full of facts. She claims she has, like, boxes and boxes of notebooks, one for each family. One such case where she has a notebook of facts um, that she does show on the air on the Sally Jesse Raphael show was Mm -hmm. of Pete Connell and his daughter Alicia. Pete Connell appears against his better judgment on the show, Sally Jesse Raphael show, in 1996. Um, His daughter, Alicia, had been kidnapped by her mother, Pat, in 1993, three years prior, and he and two other men with similar stories were featured on an episode titled, Help, My Daughter's Been Kidnapped. Okay. So typical for that time, for these shows. Very much that, yeah. Yeah. So during the episode, he has a portion of it where he gets to tell his heartfelt story. He's very emotional. Um, And Faye is later brought out, and she flat out on the air admits to helping his ex-wife, Pat, and her new husband, Mark, to whisk Alicia and another boy, um, another child of theirs whose name is Jonathan. Um, Mm -hmm. She says that she helped this family of four escape into the underground. So, okay, so Alicia is the child of this man, Pete, who is on Sally, and his ex-wife, Pat, right? Okay. Pat is now married to a man named Mark Hall, who is like a local politician where he's from. And Mm -hmm. Mark has a child named Jonathan with his ex-wife, who he has also taken away. So both of these kids have been whisked away to the underground with the help of Faye by her own admission. Okay. She says that she has a notebook full of facts and doctor and psychiatric evidence of Pete's abuse towards Alicia. And on the air, she's like waving this notebook around. And she says, you know, I even see here that you kicked Pat out of the house when she was eight months pregnant. And, you know, it's getting a reaction from the audience. And Pete is wondering, like, should I even come on the show? Like, is this what I wanted? And he's saying, like, you don't have any facts. You haven't looked into the case. Luckily for Pete, this appearance on Sally was what finally convinced somebody in the Dominican Republic to contact authorities and say that they knew the whereabouts of the Hall family. And they're all going under assumed names. And, you know, after working with the FBI, a sting was set up. And after almost four years, he was reunited with his daughter, Alicia, who then goes on to live with him and his and her stepmother and half-siblings now and lives a very happy life. Alicia says that her mother forced her to lie about her father for years. Hmm. And the Dallas Observer does an amazing expose. It's two parts. Um, it'll also be on the website. And it shows that there have been like dec- like a decade's worth almost of abuse towards Alicia by the hands of her mother, Pat. And this abuse is in the form of Pat constantly trying to force her to talk about extremely sexual things that happened to her that didn't happen to her at the hands of her father. Yikes. And there are, like, when I read the article, like, there are so many times when he 
you know, told Pat. So he actually never married Pat. I'm saying ex-wife, but it's his ex-girlfriend, I guess. So he gets Pat pregnant, and they think it's going to work out, but he realizes, like, it's it's not for him. Like, Pat is mm-hmm. not the woman for him. And he tells her pretty early on, like, you know, I'll be the father to your, your child, and, I'm you know, I, I want to raise the, your child with you. Um, I'll co-parent, but we're not going to be married. And Pat doesn't mm-hmm. like that. And so she breaks into his house, and that's why she is you know, thrown out of the house because she, she broke into the house that she didn't live in. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the eight-month pregnant story. And then from the moment she has the baby, she's trying to, like, force him into a relationship with her. And when mm-hmm. he realizes that, she realizes, like, that's not happening, she starts to decide to take his daughter away from her, from him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she comes up with these ideas of sexual abuse um, she makes her go to multiple doctors and psychiatrists who all say that the child was coached. They all say that there's no evidence of this. And every time that happens, she just tries harder. Hmm. So that is really, really traumatizing, obviously, for this little kid. Totally. <laughs> so luckily, though, she seems to be living really happily with her new family, with her father and, and, and new family, and doesn't ha- seem to have a lot of like vivid memory since she was so young at the time. Um, I found an ask me anything on Twitter from 2016 from a grown woman who was a child kidnapped by her mom and taken to Faye. Oh really? Wow. Yeah. I wish it was still open. Um, I mean, it's from 2016, but I was like, Oh, Um, the title of the ask me anything is I was kidnapped by my mom, parental kidnapping. Locked in a closet and forced to say my dad worshipped the devil in an occult, raped and killed people, and buried them in the backyard of my childhood home. Jesus. That is a mouthful. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's tons of questions on there that are really, like, interesting to see how this girl responds. Um, she says – she describes being forced to say that her dad killed people and urged by Faye to keep giving her more names. Like, they locked her in the closet with a red light. And she says, I still can't see, like, red lights in the same way. Um, it's, like, still mm-hmm. traumatizing for her. She's, like, 20, 28, 30-something, I guess now. And, uh, like, she said, like, write down the names of all the guys who were in this cult. And she said that she came out and Faye would be like, aren't there more names? Didn't you say there were more names? And she said, like, I knew I had to write down more names. And it was, like, really hard to, like, even come up with them as a kid. Wow. Um, they made her lie about satanic rituals that she said, of course, never happened. She said she had never even heard the word Satan at that point because they weren't like a religious family. She didn't even really know what she was yeah. even talking about. In the Ask Me Anything, a lot of questions are asked about like, was your father guilty? And she said no, but he wasn't necessarily a great guy. Like he had been like abusive to her mother and there yeah. was like a vicious custody battle between the two of them. Um, he was accused of other crimes, but the now grown woman – says that, you know, none of the allegations of sexual abuse or devil worship were true. And, in fact, her mother was also pretty manipulative and abusive to her. Um, The whole reason they got caught and she was freed was because her mom took her on a greyhound that Faye put them on. And her mom got drunk with some of the people that were on the greyhound bus. And when the police pulled them over... Or, like, the police were called because the bus driver called the police and said there were rowdy people on the bus... She mm-hmm. was so little that she forgot her fake name, and the police called the father, and they found out what was going on. So, wow, <laughs> yeah, her mom was arrested. It was yeah. So she has had a pretty traumatic experience. She has a child of her own now, and she says like, you know, I look at everything with a new perspective. 
And she says, uh, one of the quotes that she said was, I was forced to say that my dad raped my mom in front of me multiple times after he and other occult members drugged her, and then they took turns. My mom said, oh, that's probably why I have all these bruises, and was playing into it. That fucked me up, imagining that and having her say that. Can you... I, I mean, that's abuse. That is, like, yeah, the real abuse fully. there. Yeah. Faye has never been held accountable in a court of law for any of her actions um, on a legal basis. However, some people have attempted to sue her, and what ultimately caused her to leave the network, uh, which she did in 1997, in a leadership capacity at least, or in a public capacity, was one of these lawsuits. Bipin Shah, who is a Philadelphia millionaire who invented the ATM machine. What? That's a random connection. Yeah. <laughs> so Bipin Shah is a Philadelphia millionaire who invented the ATM machine, as I said. He is one of the the victims of this network because his ex-wife whisked away their two daughters and brought them to the underground. He puts out a $2 million reward, and he later appears on Time Magazine's cover in 1998. And I think the title was like, Where Are My Girls? Hmm. That same year... He sues Jaeger for her involvement for $100 million. Wow. In 1999, they cut a deal. Faye cuts a deal with him for an undisclosed amount, and his daughters were safely returned to him. And during this battle is when she sort of, like, leaves the spotlight. She drops out. Mm -hmm. And uh, she then, within the next year or so, opens up a 14-room bed and breakfast with her husband. Same husband, the doctor. (laughs) Okay. She appears to still have this bed and breakfast in Brevard, North Carolina. Road um, trip. Road trip. I, I mean, it, well, it looks expensive. Like, okay. <laughs> the articles that she's interviewed in, she's always at the bed and breakfast. And all of the articles uh-huh. say it's like clawfoot tubs and antique everything and the best of the best. And, you know, she turns up her nose at people that say it's too much money because she's like, this is a luxury experience. So... I don't know. What's but, her hey. What's her last name at this point? Jaeger. She's still Faye Jaeger. Okay, I'm gonna, Why? I'm gonna look up this bed and breakfast. <laughs> so she's been interviewed there several times over the years. She's very slippery when she talks about her involvement with the network. Hmm. But she does not mince words when like talking about her past. And she says that the network is still active. She has no qualms about her previous involvement. Um she says that everything she's done she's proud of. She says that she's Never helped anybody without a lot of evidence. Uh, all of these allegations are false. And uh, she won't confirm if she's still in it because she doesn't want to get in trouble. She just mm-hmm. like kind of alludes to it. She's still the same Faye. She believes that she could be more helpful to the families without all the media attention that she once garnered and loved. In fact, the network does still seem to be active. In 2016, I found an article where a young woman named Faye Koo, not to be confused with Faye Yeager, so I'll just refer to her as Koo. <laughs> she kidnapped her two kids from her ex, David Cook, not the singer David Cook, <laughs> um, who has custody of them, who at that time had custody of them. And she had, this woman Koo had tried to steal, kidnap her kids once before, two years prior and was unsuccessful and at the time she was like no 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 i wasn't trying to steal them i was just taking them on a trip and Mm. you know her her ex didn't believe her but doesn't want to not have the mother in their life so he worked with her 
over the next two years to let them have a relationship, even though he had full custody. Mm -hmm. And in 2016, she asked if they could come visit her. The two boys can come visit her in L.A., where um, where she was living, and they lived up in Seattle. So he agrees, and as soon as they arrived, she took them on a plane, allegedly, to Taiwan. She leaves a note behind in the apartment with very little of her belongings that said, The children and I are safe among friends. Please do not send strangers who can only make life more dangerous for us. Hmm. During the investigation to find his children, Faye was interviewed and asked by police um, about if she had any involvement. And she only said, my group still exists. It's much harder. You can still do it. You've just got to have a lot more. And I don't want to get into that too much. The FBI <laughs> just seizes the moment with that, especially where I'm concerned. And uh, when asked about her network, she says there's still several thousand safe houses that she knows of. Oddly, or maybe not oddly, despite her saying that she has notebooks full of info for everyone that she helps, there are zero documented allegations of abuse from David against his children. Not one, not even by their mother, Koo. And the only allegations Koo has ever said was that her ex was too strict. And uh, Koo is also affiliated with another group, another mm -hmm. sort of like vigilante group. And I, I didn't see a name, but they believe that children should just be raised by a woman. That's their belief, is that children need to be raised by women. Gotcha. All right. One supporter of said group is Cindy Dumas, and she's the executive director of Safe Kids International and the Women's Coalition. And it's she describes this as a social media-based organization that aims at altering the family court system. And she says, quote, Mothers who are the primary nurturer of their children should retain primary custody. That is what is best for the children. That is what's best for the mother. And regardless of whether there's abuse, that's what should happen. For 200 million years, we have been evolving for females to be the ones to nurture their offspring. Barf. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, an update to this case, a positive update from Newsweek, is that on February 12, 2016, just hours after this original article was published, authorities uh -huh. were able to locate the children in Mexico, and they were returned to the care of their father, and they arrested Ms. Koo um, and deported her back to the U.S. for, for trial and sentencing. Hmm. On the flip side of all this, it does appear that not all of Faye's work was completely for naught. There are several children who are now adults who have spoken out saying that they're glad that their parents whisked them away from the other. Um, one sort of on-the-fence case is of Kaylee Nicole Lopez. Uh, in 2002, she does an article with the LA Times. She was one of these children who was whisked away from her family. She says that her grandparents took her to Faye after allegations that her father first and then her stepfather had molested her at five years old. Hmm. Um, in this piece, she doesn't have any direct memory of the abuse, but she says of her father, the first memory I have of him, I was running through the house trying to find something to hide under because I didn't want to be near him. I was terrified. I was petrified of being near him. Hmm. And as for her stepfather later, she said she can picture him abusing her. He would come into her room at night. It's hazy, she said, but I know what happened to me, and I know who did it. The memories and associations of pain and fear that I went through, it's unmistakable to me what caused them and who. Yeah. When looking at all the evidence, it's really hard to separate fact from stories from her grandparents, though. Um, yeah. 
she says, quote, I grew up like a normal kid. I went to school. I had my friends. I had my home, you know. I had my room. I grew up with a normal life. And now everything's going insane. I can't have a normal life anymore. So throughout the article, she seems very conflicted. And um, this article was in 2002. I found a very recent Patreon account she has from, like, I think 2020 or, or early 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's for her to write a memoir. Oh. And um, we'll have the link to that on the on the website also. She also talks about in some – she has a YouTube account where she talks about maybe an upcoming documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows? Maybe there will be something out soon. And this is more recent. And she seems, you know, very well adjusted. And she seems to have a lot more clarity now. So I don't know what that's all going to be about. I think she's obviously keeping it close to the vest if she wants to, like, put out media. So – We'll see if anything comes out, but um, hmm. you could see that all of this had a major effect on her regardless of, of what she remembers and what ends up being the true story. Like, either yeah. way, whether it was abuse at the hands of her parents or abuse at the hands of her grandparents, like, whisking her away and taking her into this network, it, you know, it seems like it had long-standing effects on her, naturally. Yeah. Her parents, of course, deny the allegations of abuse. Her mother went on to be a social worker as soon as her daughter was kidnapped. Um, Mm. Her father uh, was like sort of like an unsavory character, but he he says like he never did anything to hurt her. Um, And he he worked at getting his degree afterwards as well. The stepfather is is uh, still with the mother, and he doesn't. He says it's false also, and that Mm. the. Allegations were coached by the grandparents because the grandparents never liked him. Mm. Uh, Kaylee's mother also says that the second she had her daughter, that the grandparents were, like, very invested and wanted – treated the kid like it was their own. And uh, they were totally, like, sideswiped by this whole thing. So, Yes. Yeah. And the par- the grandparents are very, 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 very religious and keep talking about how, like, you know, the whole experience of kidnapping the – their granddaughter like you know they were with Faye and they were in the dark and they would see the light in the distance and they knew the light was the light of God it's it's, it's a lot yeah okay. so <laughs> yeah there is a support group called Take Root and it was established by a woman in Portland Oregon who had been abducted three times in her adolescence once by her father and twice by her mother uh, this woman's name is Lisa Hart Haviv and from the website which is takeroot.org it says Take Root offers a uniquely informed, child-centered approach to child abduction issues. Landmark findings and watershed insights from our groundbreaking peer support program for former missing children are distilled into resources for impacted families, response professionals, and the public through our Child Abduction Studies program. And it says that their purpose is to add collected wisdom of former missing children to the public and policy discussions on child abduction using the voice of victims to improve America's missing child response. Hmm. Faye Yeager is still running her bed and breakfast, it seems. Um, never been yes, it, to Yes, jail. she is. I was just looking at reviews. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I, how are they? There's a lot of really scathing ones about, like, misrepresenting photos and, like, mm. lack of customer service and stuff like that. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, yeah, so that is the story of Faye Yeager and the Children of the Underground, which is possibly still a network that's working. Um, wow. Maybe just more surreptitiously. Wild. Wild, well, right? Good job. 
Yeah. Thank really you. Well. I'm a lot of the articles are written where they sort of like bury the lead and you you kind of don't know if she's doing something that you feel like, oh, okay, you know, this is like maybe not the right route, but like maybe this is badass. But mm-hmm. yeah, she's kidnapping children and it's it's interesting that you um we sort of came to that John Walsh comparison in the episode, which I was not planning on doing, but there's an example of someone who had something terrible happen to his son and has mm-hmm. used it to work with law enforcement and work with agencies to bring missing people back and to yeah. find children and bring them back to their families and get justice versus yeah. someone like Faye who had a very bad experience, I understand, with the justice system. But rather than trying to reform it or yeah. to work with agencies that would have liked to work with her. Like the FBI had tried to work with her on some cases early on. She chose to go a different route and become sort of the figurehead of an agent of an organization. Yeah. 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 Wow. Good job. Thank you. What are your thoughts on all that? I don't know. I mean, it's so, it's frustrating because as we talk about really often, the justice system doesn't work. And, right. and also, what what I'm struck what I'm struggling with right now is yes I know the justice system doesn't work and um, I you know believe survivors and and that they are not likely to make accusations that aren't true but it and when you have like children being fought over for custody with parents like that kind of stuff does happen like they right. parents will make up super terrible lies about each other to try to get what they want out of the divorce um so so it's hard i think with with children who like can't really or aren't given the opportunity to tell their own stories or can't articulate it in the way that this justice system needs them to you know yeah and it's hard because you want to believe survivors and you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and like and go full force and you know go after the people who are the abusers but even one of the stories I read about her, one of the kids who was swept away from his from her um, father and taken overseas, he fought tirelessly to find her. They finally find her in, like, uh, Switzerland. And um, it's because Faye does an interview about, like, the children of the underground and uses them as, like, a success story. And they're, like, mm-hmm. you know, you know, she's, like, wearing, like, a disguise or whatever. And... Yeah. Uh, you know, during the interview, there seems like she's saying things like, yeah, my father did this or whatever. And then at the end of the interview on camera, they ask her, like, she she seems to say something, like, similar to what happens in the episode. She says, like, she gets tripped oh. up on Like, something. I don't know what I'm supposed to say now. Yeah. Yeah. And then they ask thing. her, like, yeah, they're like, they ask her what you mean. Like, what does she mean? And she says, mommy told me to say it. And uh, the father gets to see that, and it's like heartbreaking him for, hear, for him to hear the whole thing. But he said at the end when he see, when he sees her like crying when he see when he sees her say that he like cries and realizes like okay there's still a chance. I think he ends up eventually getting his daughter back, but it takes him like a decade almost. Oof! Yikes! Terrible! Terrible! Really terrible! Yeah. Well, how do you think the episode? Okay, what do you think of the episode as far as like watchability? How would you rate it? Um, I, okay, it was a little all over the place, and the acting yeah. was pretty wild at times, and the yes. fashions were really something. Um, they sure were. But I, I think compared to some of the previous episodes, it was more entertaining. 
So yeah. I'm going to give it a C. I'm going to give it a C. I will say uh, my what I my barometer for how I will rate an episode is when I'm the recapper how many times did I go dear god how much time is left in this episode <laughs> um and I only did that once at the actually pretty early on like probably 10 minutes in I was like this has got to be close to over <laughs> um so I would say b minus oh look at you for watchability it wasn't bad yeah what about what about the, the yeah. how it related to the story? I mean, I f- it I think it told the story pretty accurately. Like it really painted kind of both parents in this situation in a negative light. Mm-hmm. But that ends up being like kind of accurate for both of them. Yeah. So I would say B minus again. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a B plus. I feel the same way. I feel like they really they kept you guessing. Really until yeah. the end about where we were going, and uh, you know they showed like the maybe virtuous uh, reasons why some of the people did what they did, but the yeah, ultimate exactly. result being you know sort of selfish. And who is the? As Robin has said, there was only one victim, and she was seven years old. Yeah. By the way, everyone, did you know that our podcast is totally free? We have new episodes every single week, so you should subscribe. And it costs absolutely nothing to write a review, and it really helps us out. Um, also, this is not an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, <laughs> but you can phone a friend and tell them to listen to our podcast. So spread the word. No need to ask Jeeves.com. I'll tell you how to find us right now. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on all platforms, and our email is RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com, where you will find the link to our Patreon. And with uh, the Patreon is super great. There's a lot of perks. You should definitely sign up right now. And a percentage of our Patreon po- Patreon proceeds, say that three times fast, gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines.